0: From the high desert of Northern New Mexico, this is Circle for Original Thinking. I am your host, Glen Appadicio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers, an open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions, We ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day, political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole and sacred America, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, and this time not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. The past year has brought us an ongoing global pandemic, tremendous social unrest, political polarization, the near complete erosion of truth in politics, the rise of authoritarianism and white nationalism culminating in the insurrection at the US Capitol. Amid all of this chaos and destruction, where do we find hope? And not just hope based in shallow wish fulfillment, but hope grounded in deep perennial wisdom traditions. Jurgen Kremer and Karen Jenke, editors of Revision Journal, decided to do something to dispel the dismal atmosphere of the past year. They put together an issue of Revision Journal that confronts the shadow side of human history, exploring different stories and worldviews that are expansive, complex, and flexible enough to uplift the spirit. That's what's needed most now. Join us as we explore places of hope in today's edition of Circle for Original Thinking. Now, I want to introduce our guest, Jürgen Jürgen Kramer, received his doctorate in clinical psychology from the Universität Hamburg, Germany. In 1982, Jurgen settled in the San Francisco Bay Area to teach full-time and serve as dean at Saybrook University, and I think later at the California Institute of Integral Studies, that's my alma mater. His teaching and research interests range from general psychology, clinical psychology, and research methods to the relevance of indigenous knowledge for today, as well as ethno-autobiography. For four years, he co-directed with Dr. Opila, Colorado, a program for Native American students and others concerned with indigenous roots and origins Jurgen is widely published has served on several editorial boards and been the executive director of Revision the journal for consciousness and transformation since 1994 Today Jurgen is a tenured faculty member at Santa Rosa Junior College he is also a consultant to the UN University for Peace and its Indigenous Science and Peace Studies program now, Karen Jenke, Ph.D., is Chair of the Consciousness and Transformative Studies Master's Program at National University. In 2016, she placed the Consciousness Studies Program online, giving it a global reach. Formerly, she served as Director of the Ecotherapy Certificate at John F. Kennedy University from 2011 to 2014 and Dissertation Director at the Institute of Imaginal Studies in Petaluma, California from 2001 to 2008. And I know that, Karen, you're also a, a graduate of CIIS. we got a lot of CIAS energy here and a lot of wonderful schools, Institute of Magical Studies, JFK, also being included. Karen is also the executive director of course with with uh, Jurgen in of revision the journal of consciousness and transformation and she has edited journals and published articles on imaginal psychology shamanism and the wounded west and also earth dreaming as well as numerous articles on dreams she is founder of dream hut consulting which you can find on the web at dreamhut.org and her creative vision synthesizes dream work, indigenous ways of knowing the subtle body with Gaian or living planetary awareness and more. So welcome to uh, Jürgen and Karen. How are you today?
1: Thank you, we're hopeful.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a good Doing
2: time. well, yes indeed. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> good, good. Well, Thank I'm really for looking forward us. to delving Oh, you're, you're my pleasure, my pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this show. I mean, I've, I've, uh, you know, for for me, oddly, the, you know, I normally love winter. It's it's my favorite season. I was born in winter. You know, I I, I love everything about winter. You know, it's like a like a bear going into your cave. It's a wonderful time for deep thinking, reflection. I love the darkness, you know, um, and, and uh, that's healing. That's a place of, you know, it almost gives birth. But this year was a little different. You know, this year I, 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 I felt like a winter of discontent. I, I wanted the winter to end. It's the first time I ever felt like that. You know, it was the last winter of the pandemic the last winner of the Trump administration. Um, and, and even our our doggy died, <laughs> Sunrise, our, our beautiful golden retriever. So we just got a new golden retriever, um, which we call Momo. Uh, Momo is Japanese for peach. And he, and he came to us as our peach tree was blooming. So yeah, I mean, there's something very hopeful about this spring. So this is a perfect time to have this this, this conversation. Um, And I want to start with uh, the root of the word hope. Um, And its Indo-European word is from the same root where we derive the word curve or to bend, you know. And it kind of reminds me of what Martin Luther King Jr. said when he was paraphrasing Theodore Parker. And he said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So what gives both of you hope during these times with the ongoing pandemic, social unrest and inequality, ecological destruction? Stop me. But okay, uh, And the like. So what what gives you hope at at this time? And and uh, Karen, you want to go first?
1: Well, uh, I do address that at length in my article, which is called Loving Life. Mm -hmm. And that's a clue. Uh, for me, uh, the human systems are, that we're in are in a lot of disarray, and frankly, not trustworthy as guides of hope. Our Western culture and civilization has um, has many flaws and fragments in it, and so for me, I actually turn toward uh, natural sources of being for hope more than cultural sources. And I talk about that at, at length in my article in terms of living systems theory as being a guide to how we can love love the world, love the living systems that are the foundation of, of culture and some kind of practices that let us return to natural ways of being. And our authors, actually many of our authors discuss those, is where I find where I find hope because the the intelligent design of the universe that's 14 billion years old, that's a place we can turn when we get into the myopia of the pandemic and the short-term view where things can look dismal in the culture. There's some greater life force energy that has allowed all this beautiful creation to come into existence. And if we can find ways to align with that, Deeper source of creativity of life, of evolution. Then, that's frankly where, personally, I find the most hope.
0: Beautiful, beautiful. It, uh, uh, yeah. Uh, And thank you, Jürgen. Where do you find hope in these times? What gives you
2: hope? (laughs) Uh, There are kind of two uh, major ways in which I find hope. And one of them may be counterintuitive, the other one may be obvious. The maybe counterintuitive one is the confrontation with all the messy stuff that is difficult, you know, what Jung would call shadow material, and actually... Uh, having the courage to go there. And, you know, there are many Jungian sayings to the effect that if we go there, something beautiful can arise. And uh, that's a place from which we can grow if we integrate, um, you know, trauma, things forgotten, things we have dissociated from. Um, And going into the shadow is actually regenerative. It makes us more whole. And from that, there is a lot of energy, a lot of creative energy that gets released when we actually have the courage to go there. And of course, it is difficult. It's a difficult journey uh, to, to stand in that place. But when we go to the well of memory, there are wonderful memories, but there are also dark memories. And both are necessary for us to confront and and to cherish. It's important that we value what the shadow has to teach us. So that's one uh, source of hope when we actually engage with uh, the shadow material and release creative energies uh, to live our lives. And the second one is primarily uh, nature, and that comes from my, my autobiography uh, growing up in Germany after the war. Uh, being in nature was a major place of healing and regeneration uh, for me and having that connection. Now, when and this is reflected in a number of the articles that we have, you know, indigenous elders, indigenous traditions talk about the importance of all our relations and there is no such thing as human exceptionalism. You know, every being, whether it's a mountain, a bird, um, a mammal, a plant, a human, they all have their place. They all have their role and they're all part of nature. They're embedded in nature. And so being with a tree, um, you know, watching the magic of planting a bulb into the soil and having, uh, you know, a, a flower appear after a while... Um, you know talking uh, listening talking to the birds you know with nature the problem is it's so easy for us to talk to nature it's much harder for us to listen to nature but our relationship with nature is Mm -hmm. is a major source of uh, hope uh, for me and that's where I go and it always regenerates me and and gives me it gives me courage gives me strength Uh, it is healing it is grounding
0: Hmm. Hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. Uh, thank you. Um, so I, I want to ask you guys to walk us through the um, the issue of Revision Journal called "Places of Hope." Um, so, what did the contributors focus on? And uh, and, and so uh, just just give us a little tour through that. Uh, Okay, I'll... You'll start, Karen? Sure.
1: Yes, I can start. um, uh, uh, We have an editorial uh, from Lenny Strobel, a very brief uh, letter to the the year 2020 that is um, at the beginning of the issue, and she basically turns many of the conventional attitudes toward 2020 that we heard... Repeated in the media, you know, the the desire to return to normal uh, and dismiss the lessons, the challenges of 2020, just to people wanting to move past it. This is kind of the perspective the media encouraged, and she examines those um, uh, cultural assumptions. Um, you know, wanting wanting 2020 to disappear from memory uh what she calls the tyranny of positive thinking and bright-sightedness that is an avoidance of the unknown and grief, or in Jurgen's terms, the shadow, the um, bypassing of the shadow that leads to a kind of superficiality. Uh, she talks about the fact that we have this illusion that the, the disruptions haven't always been with us. But that from a long term perspective there have always been disruptions to human plans, to human uh, systems. And um, and she mentions the fact that in India, the virus is a diva, uh, and people make offerings to the goddess of contagion. Whereas in the U.S., the virus is an enemy and we're at war. So there, there's a pretty big contrast of how we approach something like a a pandemic and a virus. And she says that hope is offering us an invitation to return to non-human voices, um, which Jürgen has also just spoken to. Uh, And she raises the question, what are the seeds that are buried deep and sprouting deceptively uh, into perfumed blossoms? In other words, that there's hidden, there's something hidden happening in a time like a pandemic, if we can, um, you know, listen and open to those possibilities. So. um, Yeah, yeah, she she really turns a lot of these, you know, conventional ideas on their head um, with a much expanded thinking and points of reference. Um, then the next one I'll mention is uh, Michael Gray's article. It's called "Strumming the Strings of Hope." And he starts with the question, what are the images of hope that flit and dance through our psyches? Uh, and there's a suggestion there that the capacities of imagination are part of what allows there to be a hopeful perspective. Um, And he says the future is always open, uncertain, and indeterminate, and never graspable, bit of a Buddhist perspective. Um, And so the openness of the future, the unknownness of the future, means that we project, you know, our own material onto it, and whether those images are hopeful images or images of despair um i'm elaborating here a little bit beyond what he said in the sense that the future is this projective screen uh because it's an unknown and so um whatever is within us is what we tend to to project outward onto the future the screen of the future and his own hope um is nurtured by the beauty of our planet a theme that's already come up in our conversation by a circle of friendship and by ancient traditions that fathom the nature of what it means to be a human being. And in particular, he, he likes the image of the Buddha, from the Buddhist tradition of a bird with two wings, one wing representing wisdom and one representing compassion, which suggests a balancing between mind and heart. Um, now, the interesting thing about his article is that he shares with us that his own sources of hope um, did not work for his son. And his son was occupying, obviously, a different generation and a different set of life circumstances. And he was unable to find hope in the same things that sustained his father. And he succumbed to what we might call the ultimate act of despair, which, which to me was such a teaching story because it really highlights that hope, it, it, you know, hangs in the balance, that life and death hang in the balance of hope, and that if the scales tip too far uh, away from hope, life itself is not sustainable. So there's some profound way that hope is woven into um you know the desire for life, the, the human and the human spirit, and if it's not, life itself can be extinguished. And this, we see this theme in a couple of other articles uh, that we'll get to later.
0: Uh, yes, um, I just want to interject that you know I, I do know Michael, and I know what he's gone through with his son committing suicide, and I, I just, uh, you framed it very well, Karen. It's. It opens up a lot of deep considerations i, I love the way you you put that um, it It really brings us to consider the essence of life we We go beyond even hope and we're looking at what actually sustains us, what keeps us alive, what nurtures us. Thank you so much go on I'm sorry
1: no, yeah. thank you yeah, um, yeah. the You know, for me, the teaching from his article was that the basis of hope is radically situational and deeply personal. That what works for the father doesn't necessarily work for the son. And each person has to find within their own life circumstances uh, that uh, fountain of hope. Um, And admittedly, our individual life circumstances are vastly different so um it's not hope it's not necessarily transferable from one person to the other it's a in in from my view his his the lesson is that it's it's a unique psycho-spiritual process to be discovered and nurtured afresh in each human heart and um of course some life circumstances make it make it more challenging to do that um and I'll just say in passing here, which is something we might want to return to, is that his article highlights uh, the role of worldview, of a person's worldview and maybe their spiritual worldview as um, as the soil for hope. And some worldviews are more adequate than others uh, to sustain hope and to give rise to hope. And so we'll examine this uh, further um, with a number of the authors. This is a, a big theme for me that came up in receiving these articles is that the role of the world of a worldview. And that worldview has to encompass you know the things that a person has lived through uh, as well as what they witness around them, as well as what the cultural zeitgeist is is bringing. that the, If the worldview can't handle all of those things. Then there's cracks that in which despair could, you know, come in. So I'll, um, uh, I was going to cover the next article as well. And let me, it's a brief one. So I'll I'll just touch this one and then, then Glenn will come to your article. So get ready. (laughs) So, um, we have, um, we have two authors, two authors that write about, and find inspiration in the example of a single, highly evolved human being. And you're one of them. <laughs> and the other one, and, and this single, single, highly evolved human being, uh, leads a life that is anchored in spiritual discipline and spiritual devotion. Uh, and they're both elders, actually, also. <laughs> These figures that uh, inspire admiration. So one of, the, um, one, of, one of the authors that wrestles with this um, and uses a, the example of a person who's done their spiritual work and is a, sort of an exemplar human being is um, Kimmy Johnson, and she writes an article called The Lone Monk, and it follows, um, she has a vivid dream of an ashen landscape of total destruction. Everything is just gray ash. Uh, it's an image of our worst collective nightmare, you might say, of a totally devastated landscape. And uh, she sits with this dream, heavy dream, shadow dream, we might say. Uh, the shadow, the potential shadow of Western civilization or even our planetary Demise, And um, some short time later, she sees the image of a lone monk walking with absolute equanimity through a barren landscape, very similar to the landscape she saw in her dream. And he's ringing a bell as he walks. So kind of a stately walk through this ashen landscape. In in a place of total equanimity, and the lesson there is that the depth of a spiritual practice that can meet such a devastating scenario, where a person can keep walking forward, uh, and um, and you're and that's a good segue to your article, which also starts with a a similar image of a human being who is inspiring to you, so tell us about that.
0: Well, I think you're referring to Grandfather Leon Sekatero, who was a a deep inspiration for me. Um, He was the the kindest uh, uh, and most patient man I've ever met. He he spoke with the softest, most mellifluous voice. Um, You know, I first met him in 1999, we had a dialogue circle. And uh, this was a dialogue circle that brought together Native elders and Western scientists. And Leon was speaking, and there was a learning curve for the audience. I would say um, because this would never have happened in a in a in a future year, but this is the first year. Um, the audience became uh, became some of uh, some dear friends actually, and uh, incredibly enlightened, evolved people. But that first year, there was, a, there was a woman in the back of the room who, when Leon was speaking in a soft, mellifluous voice, uh, she said, can you speak louder? And then a, a native person, um, uh, Rose Van Totter Braun, actually, um, immediately said, can you move closer? see that is you you don't normally uh, you don't ask a native elder to speak louder you move closer and that's the way uh, Leon was he was very magnetic in his uh, personality and uh, the way that he spoke and and in fact uh, uh, people did were attracted to him and attracted to his message and uh, I was very affected by his by a lot of the things that he the way that he lived mainly um, because he he really had gotten past historical trauma and he would he would say that to me and I'm sure to many others that uh, you know it's time to get past historical trauma and he's a he's the he was the head man of the Canyoncito band of Navajo so they had uh, they had suffered of course um, uh, during the Lincoln administration there was the long walk where the uh uh, the Navajo were rounded up from Canyon De Che and walked over three hundred miles over to Fort Sumner um, and then, through um, a, a great intervention of uh, divine intervention, um, they were allowed to re- return. in fact, Leon used to tell the story about that about how the reason why they returned is they were very all depressed. They were living in Fort Sumner they had it was really a poor Quality soil, hard place to actually survive. Um, they were also put there with the Mescalero Apache, their their uh, enemies, and then they 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 kept asking the uh, uh, the medicine medicine person uh, to say whether they would be allowed to return, and he wouldn't he wouldn't answer their question. They asked him, pleaded with him for months, and then finally the medicine man said. There will be a messenger that will come into camp, and he will tell you what our future is. And that next morning, a coyote came into camp. And if the coyote had gone to the north, they would perish. If the coyote would go on to the east, they would perish. If the coyote would go to the south, they would perish. But the coyote went west. Which is the way they went back to their homeland. Um, so anyway, um, I digress. But uh, the the article I actually wrote was about mostly about fear, hope, and love, because I feel that your our fear is our hope unmasked, and our hope is our fear unmasked. And what I mean by that is a little similar to what Gibran said about your joy is your sorrow unmasked. Your you know uh, because. In fact, uh, we, f- we tend to hope for things that we, um, uh, to get away from our fears. And the message that Leon taught me is to accept as a blessing whatever has happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That was the most profound message, and that's what he, in fact, prayed all the time to, um, and generally to the West direction, by the way, that's- it's interesting. Um, and that was the direction of the and the ancestors, to be thankful to the ancestors for everything that has happened to bring us to this moment in time. So to accept everything as a blessing. So that is uh, truly a profound lesson. and uh, And that's what ultimately leads us to Love, or you might say unconditional love, but I wonder if there is any love that is other than unconditional. So, so love is, I would say, always unconditional. All right, go on, and uh, we have a, we have another, maybe maybe ten more minutes we can devote toward uh, uh, walking through the issue, and then I have a couple more questions for you guys. So, uh, go on. I think Jurgen, you're going to introduce yes. some more, correct? thank
2: yes. you so l- let me weave things a little bit together here uh, at this point um, we talked about uh, suicide as the ultimate uh, act of despair and and hopelessness and i think in our society um, you know there there is a disconnection from all the sources that could nurture us that really could feed our our self And um, Karen earlier talked about the importance of of worldview. There's no uh, culturally given worldview that nurtures us. And we can see this, uh, so to speak, on the dark side when we go up to the Inuit cultures. Um, The destruction of their cultural ways has led, I I believe this is still true, the highest rate of suicide because all the natural sources of what someone makes an Inuit and nurtures and feeds an Inuit, not just physically feeds, but spiritually feeds, have been destroyed, and it is this connection. So when we are faced with despair, we're faced with despair uh, and hopelessness in an individualistic way, in a way that is disconnected from what um, could feed us. So our sense of self it is a problem here, and Durkheim, uh, you know, talked about anomie and uh, you know that cultural uh, imbalance. The two articles I want to talk about uh, really address uh, this. Uh, Lily Mendoza uh, talks uh, in her article um, about her encounter with her cultural uh, roots and how she was deeply moved when she encountered um, and 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 really studied uh, Filipino uh, art and that gave her hope because there was an alternate story and it gives inspiration as you know she describes the dark night of the soul uh, uh, experience of of our times where so many things are uh, going wrong so for her uh, remembering and uh seeing her own indigenous roots as a source of, of hope is something uh, that inspires her and allows her to imagine uh, a different type of future uh, from uh, a different uh traditional point of view, Paul Callahan, who is an Australian aborigine, he talks uh, about w- what uh, in Australia the the natives call the law, or uh, in his language, Nugurampa, which is the lore, which is, you know, what on, on this continent at times is called original instructions, which is how to take care of a place, how to be in a place, how to honor a place. And, um, you know, his, um, you know, fundamental thesis is we're, we're living in a bad story. We're living bad stories, and we should live, as the, the his elders say, make it the best story that we can uh, possibly can. And he tells an emo story and um, discusses it and invites the reader to look at their own meeting. And these ancient stories, uh, you know, we so often dismiss them as mythology, but they're really rich psychological teachings that don't look like a psychology textbook, but that really allow us to go deep, connecting our sense of self um, with, with nature and with place. So here we have the inspiration of hope through the honoring of all the beings that live in that particular ecology. And I turn it over to Karen.
1: Um, I will go uh, to um, Helen Solma's article. Helena Solma, Solholm. sorry, Um, who gives us a story. (laughs) Um, Perfect segue there. Uh, She gives us a story of the Korean, from a a Korean myth of Princess Barry. This is a girl who is born in grim circumstances. She's, and has a poor fate from the beginning. She experiences total family rejection. Her family wanted a boy. And so she's banished from all the supportive network of her family. And she ends up going on a solo journey uh, into the underworld, the heroine's journey to the underworld, where she finds her life purpose and healing medicine for the family, the original family rejecting situation. But she goes through years of toil and suffering, and her mission is completed when she saves her parents, the same people that rejected her, And she returns as a powerful healer. Uh, And she's given um, a sacred title, uh, Mudang in Korean, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, uh, which means shaman. And she's worshipped thereafter as the patron goddess of shamans. Um, And Soholm finds that her story has relevance to our current situation, where the princess steps into her power to serve in the most meaningful and compassionate way. And it involves healing her personal trauma of abandonment, helping those who've caused her pain, and through this she, dis, she demonstrates the ultimate love of a true healer. And her story also illustrates that the focus begins on the individual journey but ends in addressing the needs of the group. Uh, And she feels that this gives us um, a template for how to approach uncertainty and crisis. Um, And she thinks uh, Soholm sees the arrival of COVID-19 as also a hidden opportunity to take an inward journey, to sit with oneself and in the midst of lockdown and restrictions and to travel inwards. And uh, it's a, it's a time to let go of the distraction and disconnection and dissociation that characterize modern much of modern life. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. She also says that even though the pandemic will leave a lasting scar uh, it brings the possibility of the death of outdated and outmoded patterns that force us to face a novel and unknown world. Uh, so she mm. sees it as kind of a breaking of habituation and an opening to looking deep within and looking to other sources of, uh, of hope and, uh, well being.
0: Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. Um, wow, this is going to be quite the uh, issue. So,
2: <laughs> you know, Re-
0: Revision Journal is a very... Uh, uh, I-, I don't want to make you blush, uh, both of you, but, you know, Revision Journal is a very high-level journal. And I've, uh, I've been blessed. I mean, I've, this is not a... This is an audio podcast, but I happen to have a Revision Journal here from uh, 2004. That uh, was on the language of spirituality, which was a conference uh, we later called the Language of Spirit, the conference I referenced earlier that brought together Native elders and Western scientists. And I, t- I, th- I think of that very issue. I read many times in the, in the, uh, in the. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. You got it right there. Huh? You're <laughs> I, I, I have read that uh, issue uh, many, many times. In some of the deepest wisdom. I I've found is in there, so you know uh, I'm going to make you guys blush. But I think what you're doing is really important for the world. And uh, thank you for 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 sharing, uh, giving us a tour through the uh, the issue. I know there might be a couple more people left, I, I, I but I, I do have a couple of questions I want to ask you guys, if, if that's okay. So um, uh, for you, Jürgen, I was really thinking about how a lot of your work is about confronting the. Shadow and decolonizing historical narratives, and um, you—you're one of the 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 the, uh, the premier thinkers in in uh, delving into the, the roots of, of being white, frankly, and well, being one white supremacy, um, how that how that came about, and you've also given a lot of thought to uh, how to revision psychology. I'm, I'm grateful that you you seem to be inspired by uh, James Hillman too. I'm also very much inspired by James Hillman. We we did a conference with James, brought him to Albuquerque, and uh, also in 2004 it was called Art and Soul. Uh, one of my heroes, um, and uh, uh, and ultimately your work is really about decolonizing the mind. You know, I mean, it's so. I want to ask you, you know. Um, what What do you think is the opportunity here um in in recent times where we had the trump administration and uh and as dangerous as his presidency may have been it also um I contend in my book original politics that that was a catalyst for the revealing of the american shadow um so with this With the shadow coming out and people are able to see it, what is the opportunity here? How can we take advantage of this?
2: Well, uh, probably um, the most constructive frame that I can think of for our current uh, situation is it's a possible moment of initiation. And, you know, the different... Uh, prophecies, native prophecies and calendars kind of talk about it. You know, when we talk about the end of uh, the Mayan calendar, for example, one of the Mayan uh, daykeepers explained to me, well, you know, that's a portal opening. And, uh, you know, there's a question, will we make it uh, through this portal or not? But it's an opportunity for uh, initiation and for a profound change of understanding who we are as uh, human beings and this um, you know applies particularly to uh, the dominant cultures and the wor- in the world and by dominant cultures I don't just mean whatever U.S. Uh, hegemony but a kind of thinking that has split us off from all these sources that can give us hope you know when you start looking around hope is everywhere you know, I mean, hope is what makes us survive. But hope is everywhere. Inspiration for hope is possible everywhere. But in our Western lives, the way they are constructed, the way we perform our lives, we are disconnected from these sources. So when we encounter despair, it is difficult uh, to uh, to access uh, these uh, sources. So part of my reframing of, of psychology is really looking at the individual not as an enclosed, you know, cut off monad that is sort of there in a little husk, but really remembering that we have all these interconnections that that are there whether we're conscious of them or not. We generally, you know, we have what I call normative dissociation. You know, our culture enforces a splitting off, which puts us above nature and, you know, gives us the illusion that we can control things and that we should control things. But instead, remembering that, you know, we have our own self, our own intentionality, et cetera, et cetera. But this self is really porous, it's interconnected. It's interconnected with the beings around us, you know, reaching above, reaching below. And so my reframe of psychology really talks about that. And I look at psychology as a transdisciplinary uh, endeavor where, you know, we're focused on on the psyche, which originally really is doesn't just mean mind, and it certainly originally psyche doesn't mean behavior. Uh, you know, it refers to spirit. It refers to breath, um, you know. And so uh, remembering that original meaning uh, of, 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 of psyche and uh, remembering these interconnections. So I'm reframing what is an individual, uh, which in and of itself, I think, is healing. And I think this is what this initiatory moment asks of us. We can't go back normal. You know, the... So many people say, "Oh, you know, can't wait for COVID to be over and we'll go back to normal." Well, we cannot, and we certainly should not. Um, you know, if if we try to go back, I think it's it's just perpetrating our past uh, delusions that have not worked. And and really, the opportunity is for us to rethink how we relate to each other, to heal racism, to heal inequality. Uh, you know, to to heal sexism and all the other issues, um, you know, that are around global heating, et cetera, et cetera. That's the opportunity, and uh, you know, the beauty of the moment is we have everything that we need to actually make that shift. The question is, do we have the courage to go there? That that's the central question. Uh, you talked about fear, fear and love. You know, do we have the courage to go through the fear? abandon the crutches that we've developed that in some aspects of life have been incredibly efficient, which is why they're so addictive. You know, we're in an addictive paradigm. But do we have the courage to face, um, you know, uh, to sort of take the leap into the chasm, into the abyss? And, you know, there's this old story uh, from... Uh, Maui, which I also write about in in my uh, article, where um, there is an initiation happening, where you know people go through a dark passage. You know they go into the underworld. They're confronted with the primordial. They're confronted with the shadow, and at the end of it, uh, you know they're confronted with death. And where I think we're confronted with death, and the question is, what is the choice that we make? And we need to make a conscious choice for life. We need to make a conscious choice for the nurturing conversation with all the beings around us. And that's not a mystery. That's been there all the time. So finding the sources of hope, you know, is just the courage to open our eyes and see what's there, you know, to enjoy the beauty. You know, yesterday in my garden, these bearded irises popped open and just being with that beauty, or being with the beauty of a hawk flying overhead, or a raven, or whatever it is. And slowing down, part of it is slowing down. You know, we're at a pace where, um, you know, we're so accelerated. And our mind process is for sale, right? That's what social media and all of that is about. Our whatever psychic Mm. processes we are, they're now commodities that are for sale, But when we engage in the nurturing conversation and in ritual and ceremony, that's a place of stillness. That's a place of pause. That's a place of stepping back. And it's a place where we don't have to create Mm. verbiage. It's a place, you know, where we connect Mm. with our uh, wellsprings.
0: Hmm. That is so beautiful, Jurgen. Thank you for that. You know, wow. You speak about uh, going through the fear. I can't remember what uh, uh, tribe. I think it's a uh, one of the uh, Rosebud Sioux. I think it's a, a tell the story about uh, how they their uh, their enemies came once to uh, uh, to burn down their village and they so they tried to they tried to escape and they were they were running away from the village but they were running in the same direction the wind was going so there was no way they could outrun the fire and so they they made a decision at that moment to turn and run through the fire and then they ran through the fire which really is you know facing their fears then they emerge safely on the other side you know and it's uh, uh everything you're speaking about is 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 pretty inspiring um there is a lot of shadow in western culture a lot of things we haven't faced and it seems to me, and you know, you're speaking my language when you use the word original, So,
2: I—that's—that's <laughs> I, I
0: that's what I really think we we need to re- return to, um, not just original instructions, but uh, you know, the. The, the the last week we were we were interviewing uh uh or uh, Jeremy Johnson and uh, Barbara Carlson were on the on the podcast and we were talking about uh, Gepser you know so I mean and, uh, the German philosopher who I'm sure you're very familiar with and maybe you've even read him in the original uh, sure. so uh, Ersprung und Gegenwart, am I pronouncing that right um, Ersprung
2: the, und Gegenwart, the, the, yeah. The, Okay.
0: (laughs) The ever-present origin in English. And, uh, you know, he he basically said that uh, to 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 get to the core of his message, you know, that Western culture had confused distance from the origin and named it progress. You know, so so we we've become addicted to this concept of progress. And it's it's kind of a virus in Western culture. Besides the coronavirus, there's the virus of progress. So I want to add, turn to you, Karen, and ask you, because you have did some beautiful, beautiful writing um, on this very subject. So, you know, how do we, how do we return to the rhythms of nature? You know, the, that that uh, um, and reconnect with place. I love the title of your issue, Places of Hope, because place is very critical to hope, it seems to me. So how do we turn, Karen, to the rhythms of nature instead of the artificial demands of progress? I know you have a lot to say about that, so I turn it over to you. Uh,
1: Yeah, in my article, um, I do look at living systems theory as, which, you know, many people think of as, Uh, an abstract system, and it does have some abstractions in it. But what I try to do is extract the basic principles of living systems theory and apply them personally, uh, which is something that hasn't been done very much. We usually think of it as applied to families or other larger systems. And at the heart of that living systems theory is feedback loops and our participation, we as con- as human beings can participate consciously in feedback loops in a way that maybe is distinct from how nature is uh, participating in feedback loops. And so I look at the way the feedback loop, uh, three feedback loops that human beings have kind of a privileged access to, one is the feedback loop of affect regulation. So that's the ability to regulate our own emotional states and channel those emotional states in creative ways instead of destructive ways. Uh, that that uh, ability is disrupted by trauma, which is something we've been talking about off and on through this conversation. So it's not automatic if you didn't have good attachment as a child that you have good affect regulation. I personally didn't, so I've had to spend a lot of years of my adult life learning affect regulation. But that enables a person to come back into balance with themselves uh, instead of acting out their uh, emotional states on other people or the, their environment. A second feedback loop that I look at is um, dreams. Dreams is the way that the unconscious, we've been also talking about the shadow and the unconscious, uh, is a way that that material rises into awareness. If we work with our dreams, the shadow is right there, ready to greet us. <laughs> so um, one of the ways we can integrate the shadow personally is through doing consistent dream work and learning the language of our dreams, learning how they speak a symbolic language, and being in relationship with that. Um, Jürgen has said that um, our dreams are the place where the, the, the um, presence of the ego is diminished. Um, and so we get access to that transpersonal wellspring of energy. It's also the this, this source of hope that Jürgen was talking about. Um, earlier, and then the third um, feedback loop that I look at is the body and the subtle body um, this is kind of not known very widely except in esoteric circles that there are circuits of energy that run through the human body and we can connect with those circuits of energy um, and those are in, uh, inherently pleasurable um it's a little bit like living in a pseudo orgasmic state uh to connect with those those energy circuits and spiritual practice you can connect with those through through intense spiritual practices um mindfulness practices dream practices and so back to your question about how we connect with nature this is nature running through our own bodies these energy circuits and the, the beautiful thing about the subtle body and our connection with the subtle body is that the subtle body mediates our connection, our sense of connection with the world and with our environment. It is you might think of it as a kind of mediating intelligence. In in when we're connected with the subtle body, our sense of separateness is diminished, and we can feel the energy field around us. We can feel the environment. We feel that we're in in a vibrational wholeness with our, our immediate surroundings through through the through the energy body, through the subtle body, or sometimes it's called the dream body. Um, it opens us to this subtle dimension of awareness, which I connect with what Jurgen was saying earlier about the porous self. This is where the self becomes porous to the world, is through through the energy body or the subtle body. So, and then we feel the bodies of others. we feel the bodies of the plants, we feel the bodies of the animals. we can feel it's through that mechanism of the subtle body that we can feel into and relate to the the vibratory aliveness of another being.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm. yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate that, uh, Karen. You know, it's, uh, you, and you wrote beautifully about our, our hope dwelling and loving life. <laughs> you know, so it's just, uh, uh, connecting to that to all of nature and in those vibrations. You know, one of the things we can connect to, in fact, we were speaking about it last week with uh, uh, Barbara Carlson, is the is the microbial life within us, because that really is an enormous part of our body garden, you know? And, and uh, uh, it's, it's kind of a... Uh, challenging for people today because obviously the coronavirus is so very virulent and people have died people have been very sick and some have had you know repercussions they can't get over with easily but normally speaking the the our our uh, microbial gut uh, you know is uh is uh Giving us a lot of positive energy and uh, in fact when you're when your gut is happy you 're happy <laughs> you know and so so you 're kind of instinctually connecting to the to the world and in a way that you also wrote about you know about the human well being uh, is uh, uh connected with planetary well being and and i i i couldn't agree more i mean it's it's uh, um, the more that we just feel ourselves vibrating with the natural world and the and the less that we're obsessed with our own personal human issues and our own human agendas um, we'll be happier you know i mean uh, i mean human beings have understood this for a very long time i mean the the Tao Te Ching you know guides people to you know humans to follow nature but for some for some reason, we've gone away from that perennial wisdom, but hopefully, we're getting back to that. Yes, yeah. and Jürgen, please, if you'd like to add something, we, you know, yeah, go I just want to
2: highlight. I just want to highlight something um, uh, that, that was said, um, which is, um, you know, for thousands of years, humans have understood interconnection and valued interconnection, and it's in all the uh, traditional spiritualities, indigenous traditions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there was an understanding of our uh, spirituality, and what's happening now when you talk about the microbial world is kind of science um, criticizes its own paradigm because it, you know, it makes it apparent that our separateness is actually an illusion. So even the so-called hard sciences show us that the paradigm of the separate individual really is dysfunctional and not true. It's not who we are. We are interconnected on spiritual levels, on physical levels, on all different levels. And it's really another call for Western science to rethink it's epistemology, ontology, and ethics. And that's, uh, you know, part of the initiatory move that I think needs to happen at this time.
0: Ah, that's, that's perfect. That's perfect. I mean, uh, at the end of my book, Original Politics, I, I, I shared the, the story, which I'm sure you've probably heard, about Ramana Maharshi being asked, uh, how should we treat others? And his reply was there are no others. <laughs> so so ultimately we we are radically interconnected with with all there is. We are the light, we are the air, we are the water, we are the earth. And we three are in a good good connection today. And I'm I, I feel very blessed by this uh program, Places of Hope. Thank you so much, Jurgen. Thank you so much, Karen. This program is made possible in part by Select Books, Waterside Publications, Bizgenics, and Web Talk Radio, native flute music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD. Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. Post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies. The circle for original thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. For more information or to volunteer to help produce this podcast, go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us and you can also find and purchase my books Original Thinking and Original Politics there. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Jurgen. Thank you, Karen. Until next week, many blessings. of good health and well-being to you.